Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with another old schoolmate of mine, Sunil Jindal. Like previous guests, Robert Parks and Rimal Bala, Sunil went to Ilford County High School with me when I was there for sixth form, but unlike me, Sunil had been there since year seven. In the 11 years since we both left ICHS, Sunil is now a successful businessman and entrepreneur. He is the founder of the Ping Pong Society, a company which offers businesses and their staff bespoke one hour long events to give them a taste of table tennis in a fun and accessible way. The team is made up of former county and national champions of the sport itself, including Sunil. He is also the co-founder of Magic, a fitness technology company which sells unique mirrors powered by AI that serve as your own personal fitness trainer. The products have been endorsed by a range of celebrities in sport and fitness and he's recently done feature interviews with the Evening Standard and the Financial Times to promote the company alongside his co-founder Varun. In this episode we discuss Sunil's business journey from his origins as a school hustler, how he came to the place where he has founded and co-founded two successful businesses, the challenges of going on these journeys from setting them up to work-life balance and taking risks and all the highs and lows in between. For Sunil's mental health, we discuss the anxiety of running a business and how that has seeped into his own personal mental health, being quite shy and introverted as a child, navigating that in secondary school and sixth form, and how founding those businesses forced him to come out of his shell and flex those social muscles in order to get the word out there about his brands. So this is how my check-in with Sunil Jindal went. Before we jump in, I just want to say there are a few technical glitches on this episode. It's because I tried a new setup with the studio setup and I ended up putting the mics, which I didn't know at the time, a bit too close to each other. So it ended up picking up quite a bit of interference. Now I've taken out most of the interference so it doesn't ruin the podcast, but some I haven't been able to take out purely because it just didn't work for the edit or I couldn't get it to match the sentence flow so if you do hear them i do apologize hopefully it's not a massive issue and you still enjoy the podcast there are only really technical glitches on the start of the podcast and right towards the end for some reason so yeah hope you enjoy so Neil, welcome to the just checking pod mate thank you so much for letting me check in with you it doesn't feel like five minutes since we left ichs even though it's been what 12 years since i saw you in person for the ichs listeners who are listening are you liking are you pouncing Always lurking. Always <laughs> you lurking. always were lurking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I had to get that in there. We'll talk a little bit more about ICHS in a bit, mate. Your journey since we left school has been one of so many brilliant achievements. You've obviously had some highs, you've had some lows. We're going to talk all about it on this podcast. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Let's do it. Let's 
let's begin your podcast by talking about your journey in business, mate. Now, I'm not going to lie, until I found out you were a, a sweets hustler before Sixth Form, I had no idea you were going to turn out to be the businessman that you have become. Tell me how you went from Sunil the hustler to Sunil the CEO and co-founder of another business. Yeah, quite a crazy journey, to be honest. So I think I've always been one of those people that likes to be quite unique. So I never saw myself going down, you know, the conventional route of... The nine to five. The nine to five. I've always wanted to be slightly different, I suppose. Against the grain. Yeah, Mm. I enjoy going against the grain, to be honest. So yeah, as you said, I used to sell sweets at school. Not not a huge amount. Didn't make whatever brought in the most money, you know. (laughs) But when I say most money, profit margins were very tight. (laughs) But yeah, that was a starting point. And then, as you know, Sachin Vara... He was pouncing. He was always lurking as well. He's never a pouncer. <laughs> Mate, when I first came to ICHS, he used to be like, Fred, you're always, Fred, you're always pouncing. Fred, you're always pouncing, bro. What are you doing? You're always pouncing. Fred, you fucking love it. You fucking love it. <laughs> lurking was a thing for us, for sure. But yeah, no, like, we used to get people's names sort of put on the back of the hoodie um, and we used to sell them. Again, we didn't do very well, you know. We might have sold like two or three. That was about it. <laughs> But great fun, you know, like really good fun. We started selling cricket bats at one point as well. Classic ICHS. Yeah, so obviously Sachin and I used to play, you know, a lot of cricket. So we used to buy cricket bats and... GNs? We used to buy unbranded bats at one point, actually, and Raw. we resold those. <laughs> yeah, that's some proper, proper knockoff shit. <laughs> they were good bats, some of them. Some of them were good. And then we actually formed a partnership with this random guy who lived down Ilford Lane. You know Ilford Lane. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Some of the listeners, mate. Random character. Chaos, any time of the week. Yeah, <laughs> so Sasha and I, we went to his house one day and he had a bunch of cricket bats. And he had his own sort of brand. And we were basically selling his bats. And obviously we made a bit of profit on those. That's a bigger profit margin, I would guess. Yeah, but again, <laughs> we didn't do too well. You know, like, it was, it was a great experience though. Like, we started... I remember at one point I was calling up, you know, different sort of shops, different sort of like United Sports was one of the places, if you remember United mm-hmm. Sports, and a few other sort of sports shops around the area. We wanted to see if they would stock our cricket bats. But obviously, you know, they weren't going to. We were just a couple of kids trying to sell cricket bats. And then I also remember, I mean, there's so many other things I've done, right? Like, I think I mentioned the uh, going down Ilford Lane mm-hmm. selling lots of electronics so I bought like a job lot of products off eBay and I, I think I spent about 50 pounds on them and my thinking was you know I could very easily sell these things to, to shops so I took one of my mates and we, we took no money with us I was pretty confident I'd sell everything and I said to him you know whatever money we make from this we'll use to to buy ourselves some lunch we got down Ilford Lane you know everybody kept saying no I managed to sell a screen protector to one random guy. This was just the guy who was in the shop using, I think he was just using the internet or something. So we sold him a screen protector for a pound. So that was 50p each. <laughs> and that was all we sold the whole day. I could have got like, you two wings and chips back then. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But we bought a packet of crisps each. That was our lunch. We spent the whole day pretty much trying to sell things to people, but we, we didn't sell anything else. Good uh, build up of your social skills and learning, yeah, yeah. and learning to deal with rejection at the same time. 100%, yeah. Great learning experience, great way to push yourself, for sure. And yeah, that was a starting point. That was kind of my experience pre-university, you could say. Mm. Let's fast forward to university, because you met a very important person, which was your friend, Hakim. 
He was also entrepreneurial. He'd also tried a few maybe failed business ventures himself. So why was he important in your journey and what impact did he have on your confidence to come up with your own ideas? Yeah, so I've met a lot of awesome people, I think, you know, over the past few years. And Hakeem, yeah, he's definitely, you know, one of those. So in my first year at university, Hakeem used to stay opposite me in halls. And, you know, we just became friends, essentially. And he's always been, you know, very entrepreneurial when he was younger. He, you know, used to sort of set up some businesses, building his own sort of products and websites. And he had a, you know, a lot of experience with somebody his age very smart person as well so you know just seeing somebody doing something that I was passionate about and was interested in exploring was a great way of I suppose encouraging me to to go down that path and he was also very heavily involved with the entrepreneur society at university and he essentially encouraged me to go to what's called like a startup weekend. So Imperial were hosting one of these startup weekends. And essentially what it is, is you spend the whole of Saturday and Sunday essentially pitching an idea and building a team. And you're working on creating a business around that idea over those two days. So I was, I suppose, brave enough at least, let's say, to, to go on stage and pitch an idea at university. How many people were we talking here on stage? Um, on stage, I mean, anybody who wanted to go on stage... I mean, the audience, sorry. So like the audience you were presenting to when I think, you were on stage. I'd say we had between 50 and 100 people. Okay, so a decent amount, yeah. Yeah, it was quite a long time ago, so I don't remember exactly how many, but I've been to a couple of these startup weekends and pitched an idea. I know the second one I did at Google Campus, we had quite a big crowd. That was definitely 100 plus. Uh, Imperial probably was similar as well, I would have thought. But it was just such a fun weekend. Like I think that for me was a real, real pivotal moment. I'd say in my life. Like I really enjoyed that weekend. It was great just to see how much freedom you know you have, how creative you can be as well. Also being part of a team. Like you know I managed to form a really awesome team of really smart people. We just had a lot of fun. The business didn't go anywhere. You know we were we were still quite young, quite naive. Uh, we were learning, but. The learning curve was very, very steep and that's another thing I enjoyed because just over two days like I grew so much as a person. Towards the end of university you decided to set up a property business on Facebook. That seems like a time capsule sentence. Why was property the area you focused on and how did this go? Yes, yeah, great question. So I think for me, I, th- I think for anyone in general what I would say is if you're trying to build a business always focus on trying to solve a problem that you have. A gap in the market, yeah. Yeah, so you'll often find a gap in the market because you encounter a particular problem for your own experiences. So if you're trying to solve a problem that you have, normally you'll understand you know, the problem in quite a bit of detail. You'll understand the market. You'll, you'll, you should be a customer for the product you're building as well, which is, you know, it's a great position to be in. So essentially in my second year and my third year as well both years I had a really tough time finding a property finding I've a flat to rent students but because the letting agents are the devil yeah they're not the nicest of people for sure and renting in London especially is mm. not it's not easy at all it's very challenging so that's uh, why most people who go to university who live in London 
who go to a London university don't even end up living out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, I really wanted to live out. So mm. I, I put in the effort to do so. And in my second year, we actually found a flat. But what happened was the ceiling in my bedroom collapsed before I moved in. Wow, so I mean, thank God you went in there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Fortunately, it was before I, I moved in. But yeah, essentially what happened was we had, I think, just a couple of weeks to find a property. And out of the friends I was staying with, I was the one who was closest you know, to where we were looking to move. So I took charge of the, the process for looking. And I tend to be quite a fussy person in general. So when it comes to finding a flat, high standards, mate, let's let's call it that. <laughs> yeah, high standards is a good way to describe it. I do have very high standards. So when it came to finding a flat, I wanted to find something that was, yeah, that met my criteria. Let's say, so it was a real challenge, you know, real real difficult. And what happened was in my third year when I was looking for a flat, I thought, okay, you know, I've learned so much from the previous year. It's going to be a lot easier this time. But it was a lot harder. I was actually with Vinay at one point, who you might, oh, might remember. <laughs> we were looking to move in together at one point, actually. So we were looking... The man who loves cricket more than any other man. Yeah, <laughs> he definitely lurks a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then pounces. <laughs> and then pounces. <laughs> so, yeah, like, you know, we were sort of looking around for a place to rent. And that was a very, very challenging time, actually. So... We were very close to giving up. We were walking back towards the station. And I concluded by saying, I'm just going to live at home this year because this is very, very difficult. Very close to giving up. And then what happened was I remembered this one guy I met when I was was running around Hyde Park for some charity run. And we became friends. And he just told me about this place that he lived in. And he actually introduced me to his agent. I wasn't very willing to talk to his agent because he was this very salesy guy like you walked into his office slick rick sort of guy yeah Yeah. you just knew he was gonna like scam you in some way you know he was the sort of guy you'd want to avoid but i was desperate at the point right so i was like you know like i've got nothing i've got nothing you know to lose right now like there's no harm in me at least going to him and seeing what he has to offer i walked into his office and you know he puts on the the salesy voice the salesy pitch and he gets one of these probably unpaid interns to go and show me around this uh, property. And uh, it wasn't the nicest of properties, but I ended up living there. And, you know, it was it did turn out to be a great sort of place to stay. We did get raided by the police a few days after we moved in. Um, that's a different story. <laughs> Un- unnerving. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, yeah, to answer your question, like I just realized that there's a lot of problems out there when it comes to finding a property. And I'm someone who was born and grew up in London so I am at a massive advantage compared to international students so they think uh, London ends at like Oxford Circus <laughs> well, East London what's that <laughs> yeah I mean nobody knows about Ilford or you know Wanstead well, that's Wanstead. for sure yeah. <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, I have to always say Stratford and then so do yeah. I yeah, yeah so do I exactly it's very different but yeah essentially I realised that you know if it's challenging if this is how hard it is for me just imagine mm. how hard it is for international students and because I studied at Imperial, I knew quite a few international students. And what I learned was that a lot of these people, there was a pattern. They were coming over to London. They would stay in a hotel or they'd stay with friends for a couple of weeks. And in that short period of time, they're trying to find a property. 
They don't understand the market. They might not speak the language so well. Or even how to navigate the city at this point. How to navigate the city, yeah. So they they just get ripped off. So my business idea was basically very simple. It was just to help them find a property. So I would be on their side. So was it kind of like a glass door for students and housing? Not necessarily glass door. That was my first idea. So that's actually what I pitched at the Imperial Startup Weekend is essentially a system. That's a good idea, by the way. Yeah, it's a way (laughs) of like... needed for students. For sure. It's like a way of kind of building reviews for for properties. But the problem is... Or even letting agents. Yeah, letting agents as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's not much to do there. But but yeah, the problem is like if somebody moves into a flat, they normally stay there for at least nine months or a year. Mm. So you won't get many reviews, right, very quickly. But yeah, essentially, I, I started becoming an agent for the tenant. So I would conduct the search for them. I would do viewings for them as well. So a lot of the times, these were people who were in other countries, and I would do video viewings for them and send it to them. Nice. But yeah, the problem with this was that it wasn't the most profitable of businesses. Mm-hmm. So normally, I, I think, to be honest, like in hindsight, I was quite inexperienced at the time as well. That was another thing. I was probably looking in the wrong places for customers. So I was very much like going on to Facebook groups. People who search for properties on Facebook groups tend to be people who don't necessarily have like a lot of money looking for a bargain. So these people weren't really willing to pay for my services on Mm. top of the rent they were going to pay. London Business School students were very good customers actually. But again, there's only so many of them. So we didn't get very far with that. But yeah, that was essentially that business. Mm. And how did that experience lead you to apply for a job at Hubble? which I'm right in saying was an early stage startup at the time. Yeah, so Hubble, I'd say, was one of the most important moments of my life so far, 100%. The way that happened was a guy called Varun. He has always been very active on social media. I never see him not using social media. (laughs) Makes your life easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, it's very good for me because he was very active about posting about Hubble on Facebook at the time. And... You know, we were Facebook friends. I knew of him, like, we kind of, we're part of, like, the same kind of community, you could say. Acquaintances. Yeah, so, you know, I kind of knew him before, and things like this, and he promoted, like, he he just published, like, he was, like, promoting this job for, I think it was a customer success intern on Facebook, and the timing just lined up very nicely for me, because I was coming, I was getting to this period where I was, like, there's like so much here that I need to learn that I know, you know, I'm kind of missing out on. And if I want to set up a business myself, I, I need to go through this learning process. And I applied for the job at Hubble and, uh, you know, Varun was basically saying there were about 100 applicants and I got chosen. I think Sachin Vara applied as well, actually. He's got a few mentions on this pod, so if you listen, <laughs> But yeah, no, like I, I was very fortunate enough to, you know, to get that position and I, I was an intern for three months, you know, it was, I had a list of like things I wanted from a job, you know, if I were to work in a job and Hubble ticked most of those boxes, right? Like it was, it was a great place. Um, just great team. Like I can't speak. I, yeah. Like, mm. yeah, it's very hard to say anything bad about it. It's such a, such a good place. You said it changed you into a new person in over one and a half years, which is a pretty big statement considering that Imperial was obviously a massive part of your life and yeah. everything else. So why was that? Yes, this is a great question. It's very, yeah, very bold statement to make for sure. I mean, Imperial's classed as one of the best universities in the world, right? And I was there for three years, whereas Hubble, I was there for a year and a half. But 100%, like Hubble done so much to shape me. And I think part of it is when you're working together in a team, you know, collectively to build, you know, to sort of make an idea, turning an idea into, you know, a proper 
profitable business, it really pushes you. And the people I was working with, like at the time when I started, I was the youngest in the team. Everyone around me was pretty much somebody I looked up to. I would learn something from, right? And we went through this program at one point, which was essentially an accelerator program, which is like a, a course where you sort of learn more about business and how to build a successful business. And the people running this course were very, very smart people. Like I think we had a couple of people from the PayPal Mafia, like you know, very early sort of founding team at PayPal. And some other very well-known companies as well. You know, we had some amazing people mentoring us. And that, you know, was so, so useful for me as a person. Just that period of time, you know, I just learned an insane amount, you know, like so, so much. Yeah, when I was meeting up with friends, you know, they were talking to me about all the Excel spreadsheets they're using. And, you know, here's me doing some crazy things in a startup. I had a lot of, you know, responsibility. And I think Part of that credit obviously goes to me for working so hard and, you know, I think being the person I am, but obviously also to the team, you know, the people around me, especially the co-founders who believed in me at the time and, you know, gave me the opportunity because what happened was I was a customer success intern for three months, but then, you know, they sort of approached me and they said, we think you'd be a good product manager for us. So, Which is quite a jump. Yeah, it's definitely a, a jump. And I mean, it's kind of what I sort of was aiming for in a sense, because, The reason I took on that intern role was because I wanted a way to get into a startup and to learn. I had no idea what I wanted to do, to be honest. So for them to come up to me and actually tell me what they think I'd be good at and be useful at was very helpful, Mm. you know, and it turned out to be something that was a very good fit. So I, yeah, very, very grateful to, um, to the team for that, for sure. And, you know, like they took a big risk on me to give me that sort of role and to even train me to do that, right? But it's yeah worked out very well for me. Before we get to magic, the first business you set up was the Ping Pong Society, which came out of your love for table tennis. You were widely regarded as like the best table tennis player at school. I think you were probably the only table tennis player at school, to be honest. But <laughs> there we go. How did your love for the sport translate into the viable business then? Yeah, so there was actually one other guy in our school the year above who was better than me. I should mention that. <laughs> So, yeah, but when he left, obviously, I was the best in the 100%. <laughs> Undoubtedly. So, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think, you know, when it comes to building a business, always try and focus on building something in an area that you understand well, that solves a problem that you have. And table tennis was definitely something I was, you know, super passionate about. I actually did not want to set up, I did not want to build a startup in the conventional way. After working at Hubble and being around the co-founders, because of all the awesome insights I had, I was very sort of clear on myself that I did not want to follow that same path because, you know, the whole mental health side of things, it's mm. a very, very stressful... Seven day weeks, 18 day, yeah, nine hour days, yeah. It's a very stressful process, right? There's endless challenges. It's, you've got to, yeah, you've really got to be quite brave, I think, to do something like that. You've got to be really passionate about what you're doing as well. So... From the get-go, I was very careful about how I wanted to structure this business. So I never saw it as something that I wanted to go out and make a lot of money from. It was something I hoped to make money from, for sure. It was your passion. It was my passion, 100%. And I think one thing, I think one of the things that really annoys me, one of the biggest sort of pet peeves I have is when people say table tennis is not a sport. Who says that? 
Lots of people say that, and it's really, really frustrating. I can think of a few other sports that probably aren't sports, but that isn't <laughs> what I'd consider as one of them. Yeah, I think the problem with table tennis is that it's not very well promoted in the UK. So sure. I think if people think of table tennis, there is definitely a big group of people out there. When they think of table tennis, they picture it as you know two people standing on opposite sides of the table, just slowly hitting a ball back and forth, right? Even the English, there's some very, very good players around, you know, like, you'll see that it's very tiring. So I play five days a week at the moment, well, I did this week anyways, and I'm exhausted, so (laughs) it is very tiring. But essentially, yeah, I wanted, like, one of my goals was to help grow the sport of table tennis, you know, help it become more popular. And I'm also a table tennis coach as well, so I wanted to sort of, you know, help people get better, I think. One of the sort of avenues that I started exploring was introducing table tennis to companies. So when I was at Hubble, we were actually approached by somebody who was running a corporate league and we joined it. But there were a lot of problems with the way the league was run, you know, like not just anything bad about it, but there were a lot of things that I could see could be improved. So I thought, you know, there's something interesting here for me to do. And it tied in very well with some of my values and some of the constraints I wanted to impose on myself, like I did not want to have employees. I didn't want to have... We're doing employees in air quotes for the listeners, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I didn't want to have employees. I didn't want to have investors. Right. So the reason being is because I don't want that sense of being accountable to people because then you get locked in, right? I wanted to build a sort of business where if things were getting too much for me, I could take a break from it, you know, mm. get back to it at some point in the future. So there were things like this that I was, you know, very careful about. So, yeah, essentially started running like a league for lots of different companies. And it was a very innovative league. So it wasn't your sort of, you know, typical league where you have a set of fixtures for the next few months or so. The way I was doing this was that I was I was writing a lot of code behind the scenes and I was essentially sending emails out once a week, once every two weeks to, to players and essentially asking them if they're available for the next match. And based on availability... That's a lot of admin, bro. It was all automated. So, oh, fair. Yeah, so I, might, I I can write code, fortunately, so that helped me <laughs> a lot. And I was using this uh, ELO rating system, so I actually like, was fortunate enough to get the help of one of my friends, Imran, who's like you know really, really smart guy. He helped me to essentially build this ELO rating system where we would analyze people's results and we would use that to come up with a ranking for every player who was a part of the the league. So you built an algorithm, essentially. So we built an algorithm to essentially match teams and players together based on various criteria such as standard, availability, location, all sorts of stuff, essentially. That was essentially what I started doing. That didn't go so well. Like, I realized that a lot of players were not playing for very long. After a couple of weeks, they would stop playing. And being a product manager, you know, I kind of went in and tried to understand why this was the case. And essentially... What I learned was that it's because nobody likes to lose, right? Like if you lose and you have no way of getting better or you don't get paired with somebody who's a similar level to you, you're going to stop playing. And, you know, as hard as I try to match people evenly, it's a bit difficult when the number of people playing isn't so large. But saying that, like, you know, we had some awesome companies playing for us. Like we, we work Monzo, Blockchain. Compare the market. I've compare got down the here. market. Yeah, there's, there's an endless list of like very well-known companies. So I was very proud of that. I actually turned it into a sort of coaching event. So 
I don't call it coaching because people who play in companies, they wear jeans, you know, they aren't proper, like, you know, they're playing socially more than anything. So if you call it coaching, it puts a lot of people off. So the event I was running, the way I would promote it to people is that they'd be hitting hundreds of balls at a target. And the target would typically be someone like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, you know. I think these are... I could not possibly comment on that, (laughs) being politically impartial. (laughs) But yeah, I, I don't have to be impartial, I can say it. So yeah, the, these <laughs> are these are characters that, you know, people enjoy hitting. Well, not everyone, but I know a lot of people, at least from my experiences running these events, people were very happy when they were hitting, you know, Donald Trump especially. And yeah, th- this was a great event. So I got a group of like five to ten people together. I'd take a speaker, we'd play some music. It'd be a great team social. Uh, I'd give people tips as well. You know, being a coach, I can help people improve. And it's my way of introducing, you know, table tennis as a proper sport to teams, to companies. And I was also, you know, grateful enough to get the help of like some some good friends who were also very, very good players. And I was able to sort of support them in some way as well by helping them to, you know, make a little bit of money at least. And then, yeah, COVID hit. So that's been on pause ever since. But I will get back to that soon. You're manifesting it here, bro, so I'm going to hold you to that. I am. My goal for this year was to run it at Liverpool Football Club, but I am going to postpone that to next year because this year is pretty crazy and I think we've only got two months to go. (laughs) There you go. Not long. Have to set your expectations, don't you? (laughs) Let's talk about your main project now, which is Magic. So you and your co-founder, Varun, initially, as you said, met at, was it uni together or? We met at Hubble. Hubble, you met at Hubble. So how did the idea for it come about? And tell the listeners what it offers. Sure. So Var and I, we actually met at school. So we went to the same school, right? But I suppose we didn't know each other properly until Hubble. So Magic, essentially, you could say it's an AI personal trainer for your home. So the way this business came about was actually, it was actually Varun's idea. Um, it was through his own sort of experiences with training. I think when he was getting married, he went through this crazy personal training, you know, kind of fitness regime where... He was trying to, you know, obviously get as fit as he could, as quickly as he could for his wedding. And yeah, like I was saying earlier, right, like it's best to solve a problem that you have. And obviously from his own exposure to that industry, he realized that he found a lot of opportunities. And yeah, he came up with this concept of magic, which to go in more detail about how it works and what it is, essentially, it's... looks pretty futuristic on the website. It's right? very yeah. futuristic. Whenever we showcase it to people, we always get a big crowd. People are very, very intrigued in it by what we're working on. It's, it's very, very cool. The way I describe it to people is if you think of your TV, right? So think of the screen as a mirror. So that's essentially what it is. We run an app that runs on the device. So we run a fitness app. And what you're doing is you're following along with a series of workouts that are, you know, pre-programmed on the device. So like a home workout video on a mirror. A home a workout. <laughs> yeah, a home workout video on a mirror. It's, it gets a bit more, a bit cooler than that, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I'm just trying to paint a picture for the listeners. But yeah, so. that's a good starting point for sure. So what we do is we use AI to detect your body movements. So we can count how many reps you do. We can help correct your form as well. So if you're doing a squat... We have professional athletes on the platform like Alistair Cook or Sir Alistair Cook, should I say? Just retired. Who just retired, yes. <laughs> Katia Jones. I, I had to say that otherwise, Vinay, you're listening, will <laughs> respond to me saying, you know, you just retired, bro. <laughs> I was about to say that as well. But yeah, Katia Jones from Strictly Come Dancing. There's a few Olympians as well, like Desiree Henry, Celia Conso, is like an England rugby player. Uh, some very well-known people, basically, who are the athletes on, on the mirror. Good endorsements, essentially. 
Great endorsements, 100%. Great endorsements. And you follow along, you know, with them on the device. And our AI tracks your body movements. So if you're doing a squat, we can count your reps and we can help correct your form as well. So if you don't go low enough, we would say to you, know, please go lower. And our goal is to basically become a replacement for a personal trainer. It's actually... It's not the cheapest of devices, to be no, perfectly no, honest. No. But Look at the you, prices. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you if you think about what we're trying to do here, right? As a long-term investment, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's also, if you compare it to, like, our goal is, what we are building, what we have is a replacement for a personal trainer. Mm. So if you compare it to personal training, it's actually a lot cheaper, you know, if you think about it. So you can have up to five users using the device at one time. And personal training, you know, it can cost, like... I'm 50 pound a session, like, easy. Yeah, it's a face level. Pound. That's cheap. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in Ilford, maybe you can do thirty pounds an <laughs> yeah, hour. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depends. Just you ask know. the boss man next door. Yeah, yeah, he'll double up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they might not be the best personal trainers yeah. at that price, but yeah, you know, it's a great investment. Like we, we have a lot of a lot of great customers. You know, people seem to be enjoying it, mm. and there's always new things we're releasing. Very exciting things working at the moment for sure. I feel like the film Dodgeball almost predicted this. Do you know when um, Vince Vaughn goes into the gym and Ben Siller's going, I'm watching you, I'm watching you, Jerry. Four more press-ups. And he's like talking to people on this TV screen. I'm like, wow, he actually predicted this. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's very futuristic. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we call it magic because it mm. feels very magical. So magic combines AI with fitness. There's a lot of trepidation about AI in the world right now. Some justified, I would add. So how did you broach that subject when it came to investors and just the general public and education about the product? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think we've had like many issues from customers or investors around that, but we certainly have people asking, you know, about AI and how, you know, scary it is and things like this. And I totally agree. I think, you know, any new creation, any new invention that we sort of come up with, right, it has... And it's a disruptor as well, your product, technically. To 100%, the industry. Yeah. yeah. Like, it has unintended consequences, right? And AI is particularly scary because it touches so many areas of our mm. lives. The potential for AI is, is insane. Yeah, 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 it's very, very scary. Would you like to see more regulation in that sense? So you kind of know what you can do and what you can't do? Yeah, so I, I would say... There's not a lot right now in the industry, I would say, when it comes to AI. There's not, there's not much at all at the moment. And the problem is that if you introduce regulation, it's got to be worldwide, which, mm. as we know, is very difficult to come on a global agreement. Like, if you just think about climate change, for example, you know, there's all these issues there with different governments, you know. So, it's like, if the UK government came to, you know, a decision to put the development of AI on pause, if you want to go crazy, right, it's unlikely that other governments... Would, would do the suit. same, like, yeah, Russia... like oh, they've stopped now. We can get ahead, exactly. Yeah, yeah. China's not going to do that, yeah. Russia's definitely not going to do that. So, it's it's very difficult to sort of you know come up with some globally accepted regulation for this sort of thing. But personally, I believe that I think we probably should, though, yeah. Honest, I definitely yeah. believe we should be especially conscious for this for AI because it's think... got so many implications, doesn't it? Workforce anything really isn't it 100% mm. yeah so I wouldn't put it on pause but I would definitely be more conscious about what we're doing I mean if you think about social media as a great example right so we talk about mental health when Mark Zuckerberg and his team you know built Facebook I'm pretty sure they didn't anticipate you know the sort of issues that we have now with anxiety and depression from using you know social media because it started off as a university networking exactly circle basically. yeah mm. but i think with anything new there tends to be unintended consequences right and yeah as i was saying ai is a 
particularly scary area. Your role in the company is chief product officer. So what is your relationship like with Varen as it's the brand's developed? And how do you work together to ensure that the brand grows and everything else? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's good in the sense that Varen and I have known each other for quite a long time. So we both work together at Hubble. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses pretty well. So it's sort of helped us to, you know, form a very good, a very good bond, you could say, when it comes to working together. So, yeah, I focus very much on the product and the tech. And, you know, Varen has, at least I think he has confidence <laughs> in me, you know, doing a good job in that space. And, you know, likewise, like Varun focuses on the marketing and the finance. The schmoozer. (laughs) Yeah, and he's very, very, like, he's very good at what he does. And, you know, I have a lot of confidence that he can execute in his particular areas Mm. of expertise. You've got a good balance then. We have a great balance. We complement each other very well. So it's a great relationship. Mm. And, you know, it kind of shows from the work we're doing. And how do you support each other's mental health? Because running a business is obviously not an easy task. There's challenges, there's fights, there's conflicts, there's probably tears when you have a great achievement and there might be tears when you have a fight. So how do you support each other's mental health to make sure that you're always in the as best place as possible, it's never perfect, to succeed? Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a very interesting question. So And what, support your team as well, by the way. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So at one point I did notice that there seemed to be some, not, not a huge amount, but a small amount of growing friction between us. Not just between us, but between different members of the team as well. What happened was at one point we started working from home. can't remember exact reasons why, but we, we essentially, there, there was a period of a few months where we were just working from home. And I think the problem is when you're not seeing somebody in person, we talk over, you know, Slack a lot. It's Tone of voice is not present. Exactly. Mm. It's a very, it's much more transactional, yes. the conversation. Easier than emails, but harder than a face-to-face to, yeah, to sort things out. Exactly. So you can't really see what somebody's doing. You can't see what they're going through. You can't uh, understand the emotion behind the message. And that was the issue. Fortunately, Varun is quite close to me. So I thought it made sense for us to... So we used to catch up once a week over video calls and things like this. But I started thinking it it might make more sense for us to actually meet in person. You know, Varun lives in a fairly, you know, nice-ish area where there's a lot of green space around. So especially over summer, you know, when the weather was nice, we started meeting up and we would just do our catch-ups over a walk. And the catch-ups weren't long. They were, you know, maybe an hour or so. But one thing I realized, and I'm pretty sure he, he realized as well, is that just in that hour, just one hour a week, it really helped us, you know, to sort of remove that friction that we had. There was any, maybe I was imagining it, <laughs> but at least for me, I felt like there was some friction. And just, you know, kind of strengthen our bond, mm. essentially, which is super important for building the business. Did the walk help? Because I spoke to a previous guest called Dean Corney, who's a firefighter, and he set up a mental health support group for emergency service workers, and they physically walk around the park. And the process of the walk, I kind of describe as similar to what I did with EMDR therapy with tapping and that motion. So did the walk take the pressure off from the stereotypical sit down and actually the movement itself help with kind of getting you talking basically? Yes, yeah, another great question. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I think that's one thing I've probably learned a few years ago, to be honest, like just from my own experiences as, as people do walking, especially in nature, right? It's great. It's a great way of sort of curbing anxiety and your depression and things like this so 100% like you know like very fortunate that he lives where he does he has that green space around him 
so we were able to you know go for these walks in in the nice weather and he lives like around like sort of woodland so there's a lot of if you think of like epping forest mm-hmm. there's a lot of trees very much like that and it's just a really nice sort of place to to be especially on a good day when it comes to work-life balance you'll sometimes hear ceos in the media talk about winning all the time and to do so you have to sacrifice work balance you have to sacrifice all these other stuff to succeed or get ahead or climb the corporate ladder do you agree with that what, what's your perspective on it do you think it's outdated or not I yeah I definitely don't agree with that I think my way of running a business is very unconventional so as a team we don't really have a lot of meetings like I think we've done a good job at hiring you know good people who don't need micromanaging and who can you know do their job very well Mm. yeah they can work very autonomously it's just a great sort of you know environment to be and when we have calls they tend to be quite productive you know we're not wasting time I personally, when it comes to working, I don't work crazy hours. That's definitely something I don't do. I believe that a lot of people who work nine to five, what they're doing is that a lot of the time they are working, they're not actually working. They're just sitting at their desk, normally quite unproductive. One thing I learned early on for myself was that I was most productive in the mornings i get an insane amount done in the mornings afternoons and evenings i'm like half asleep you know i can't <laughs> post get... lunch lull I call yeah. It, yeah food coma. P-O-L. <laughs> yeah exactly i can't get much done at all so you know i'm very sort of uh, conscious of that and i form my routine around this i play a lot of table tennis as well you know as i've mentioned so for me table tennis is is it your escape? It's definitely an escape. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a great way for me to de-stress. I also have personal goals in table tennis where I want to become top 100 in England. What are you currently? 620 Okay, as so of, you've got a way to go, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> as of a few days ago. But I'm not very far from 400 or 300, I'd say. What so, is the gap? Is it just consistency? Is it? Is there a big quality gap, so to speak, that you have to kind of reach or not? I think for me to get to 300, I'm not far off like where I am now. Like officially I am 600, but I think if I became slightly more consistent and uh, strengthened my legs a little bit because they're <laughs> a little bit weak, if I moved a bit faster, had a bit more energy, I I, I would think I'd get A few more squats, a few more leg presses then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need to do that. But yeah, like table tennis is just a great way for me to, you know, sort of relax mm. and just forget about work and just, you know, focus on on another important area of my life you could say before we reflect you've done a few feature interviews doing magic so evening standard is one financial times is the other how significant were these as little personal achievements for you and baron yeah very 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 rewarding 100 percent. there's something very interesting that we might be doing this week that i can't disclose just yet no problem this won't come out for another but... couple of weeks so it'll probably be out by the time <laughs> this comes out i don't know if it will happen <laughs> but we'll see tbc um, tbc tbc <laughs> but yeah and no, i think it's all credit to Varen really like he's very good you know when it comes to press like even if you google his name you'll see lots of articles just about him the things that he's done in his life so far so yeah he's done a great job you know getting us in the evening standard financial times to be honest we're probably in most places like if you want to throw some names out they were probably in there to be perfectly honest um, he's proactive very mm-hmm. proactive yeah there was there's this uh, i think it's the startup magazine i can't remember what it's called i think that's the name we were in this recently and mm-hmm. we moved into a new office space a couple of weeks ago and they just happened to have that magazine sitting on the table we opened it up and there was a photo of both of us just you know kind just of chilling just <laughs> chilling you know just lurking lurking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
so that was oh, that was great you know like he's he does a very good job of marketing and press he's say. ready to lurk and pounce he's yeah. ready to pounce 100%. Yeah. let's reflect on your business journey then mate so first of all what has been your proudest achievement on it so far with magic with everything yeah it's a great question proudest moment i'd say i don't know if there's one particular moment that really stands out but i mean if we focus on the two businesses yeah so with the ping pong society i'd say uh, there was this one time where i went to it was a talk i went to in my early days at hubble where hugo who was the i think he was the head of design at monzo at the time he did a talk and he very much felt like a celebrity for right. the audience he got like the best kind of response he very much felt like a sort of celebrity figure when he was he was talking to a massive audience about you know the design design at Monzo, and when I started the Ping Pong Society, like firstly, I was talking to the CEO, the the former CEO of Monzo, uh, Tom Blomfield, via email. He managed to get Monzo to sign up for the business I was running, and then Hugo and there were a couple other really awesome people as well from Monzo. They took part in a match and I went to go and watch that match just so I could talk to them because for me like you know I'm a big sort of as a product person I'm quite a big sort of design enthusiast just being around them and just talking to them and actually getting them to be a participant in this business I built was like a pretty awesome moment I'd say and we've also had some other really well-known people who have played in ping pong sites as well like we had the CEO of they were called Market Invoice at the time, then they changed to Market Finance. I don't know what their name is now. I know they, they changed again recently, but that was pretty incredible. And just visiting some awesome offices as well. Like I've been to, you know, the office of Wise, who were formerly known as TransferWise. Great place. Compare the market. They've got like meerkats everywhere. Like it's super cool. Of course. Um, <laughs> it's so awesome. Like, you know, who would have thought I'd be doing something like that? And then Magic, I mean, Magic, we're still, we're still in the early days. I think there are going to be some, like, really incredible things to come. But saying that, like, as I say that, there are some incredible memories that come to my mind. Like, Alistair Cook, like, having Sir Alistair Cook in the office, that was really awesome. You know, I'm a big cricket fan. I used to play cricket for Essex as a kid. So, Alistair Cook, you know, played cricket for Essex. He was the captain, I believe, at one point. Mm -hmm. And I came back from holiday... And the next day, Alistair Cook was in the office. I was half asleep, but I had to go in. So I was just sitting in the studio, just watching Alistair Cook recording. It was a little bit awkward because everyone was quiet. I think everyone was a bit nervous being around him. And he pointed it out as well. But yeah, like it was great. I told him, you know, I used to play for Essex. I got a photo with him. That for me was like, I don't go crazy when I see like, you know, celebrities, this sort of thing. But Alistair Cook was just for me another level. So that was really awesome. And then I think the other the other big thing, like with anything I build really, is just seeing like the response from customers. So we recently, we had to sort of present magic at this uh, interview we had for like a, this big award. So we had to take the mirror to this hotel. And there were some people there who were just interested in seeing the product, like, uh, you know, separate to the interview. So we set up the mirror in like the sort of corridor. And suddenly there's like at least 10 people just surrounding us out of nowhere like they have their phones and they're just filming and they're like wow this is so awesome and in that moment you just feel like a celebrity because <laughs> the product like you know we have a great team but personally for me I've put in so much effort into that product and a lot of the things that are physically on the device are ideas that I've come up with or that I've played you know a 
pivotal role in developing. So for me personally, you know, it's just like a very rewarding moment. And also just to see, you know, how much the team has accomplished because we have, you know, great people working on this who will contribute a lot to the business. And as a final question, what has this wider business journey from selling sweets in ICHS to setting up Ping Pong Society and now helping to run Magic taught you about yourself? That, yeah, that's another really good question. I think I learned, I've learned a lot of things. One of the biggest things that actually started when I was at Hubble was just that I'm capable of like so much more than I realize. And not just me, anyone is capable of so much more than they realize. You know, if you put yourself in the right conditions, you challenge yourself and you really believe in yourself, like you can do some awesome things. And I think, you know, the things I've achieved so far to a lot of people, I think they would say it's pretty awesome, right? Like even, you know, from young age of 12, when I played cricket for Essex, like I didn't play for Essex for long, but that moment is something that a lot of people dream of, right? And then studying at Imperial, which people would class as, you know, it is one of the best universities in the world. Again, it's like something that a lot of people want to do. And then just so many other things that I've, you know, accomplished, um, like with the ping pong society and magic, just other areas of my life. I have achieved a lot, but personally, I believe I've only touched the surface. I've only scratched the surface. And there is so much more that I can do. And yeah, like my goal is just to keep pushing, but obviously at the same time, make sure you're enjoying the journey because if you're not enjoying the journey, there's no no point Mm. in doing it. So yeah, it's been great. We talked about Sunil, the entrepreneur, the founder of one business, now the chief product officer of another. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question first on this topic. Take you back to early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences who's the Sunil we meet here so yeah I'd say uh if we think back to sort of school days Mm -hmm. I've always been quite shy as a kid I think ever since I was (laughs) ever since I was like very young yeah you weren't pouncing at school (laughs) that way (laughs) yeah I was definitely definitely quite shy as a person I still am today to be honest I think like when I was in primary school I think I was probably struggling to to integrate with Mm -hmm. people in my class not a huge amount you know like over time of course I made friends and I was perfectly normal but I know my dad actually put in quite a bit of effort and he would just take me and a group of friends from school just to sort of you know play some cricket or football or something and yeah like when I spoke to him about it recently he said it was like you know a way for like essentially he did it so that I would essentially build friendships with you know people I've always had that struggle, like I'm not the best at approaching people I don't know or talking to people I don't know. I have improved a lot in that area and part of it has been the result of, you know, building businesses and doing, you know, what I'm doing. But it's it's been a definitely been a hindrance in some way, mm-hmm. for sure. It's made things a little bit harder. But one thing I found is because of this, I naturally tend to be someone who's a little more keeps a little more to themselves at times. And that has actually introduced me to this kind of creative side of me. I think, you know, somebody who is shy and introverted tends to be isolated a lot more than Mm. other people. And because of this, it has created a bubble, but also good conditions for creativity. So, you know, I think without this, I wouldn't be 
building you know these businesses working on these crazy things because yeah like it's very hard to be creative and think of innovative ideas if you're constantly bombarded with noise yeah did that ability the pros and cons of it help you or hinder you in ICHS did it allow you to fly under the radar for example or did it stop you from integrating as well I think it's always a mixture it's never one or the other it's always it's Mm. always a combination of things I think for me I've been very fortunate and again it's you know great like effort from my parents when it comes to sport you know because I became involved with cricket from an early age it was a great way for me to to socialize and you know you were talking earlier about walking and how you know walking the activity of walking is just a great way in itself of curbing anxiety and, and depression I always describe sport as my drug and the reason for that is because when you're doing something physically active such as playing table tennis or cricket where you're moving fast it is helping to curb the symptoms of anxiety right it makes you feel more relaxed that shyness starts to disappear and you become more like I don't know if I'd say a normal person because I don't know how I would define normal person but it helps you to become more comfortable around people and that has helped me a lot to build friendships and I have a lot of friends from sports because you know because of this and I you know play cricket at school as well we had a great cricket team and again if I want to mention Sachin Vare again <laughs> you know he was obviously a yeah, very pivotal person in that team like he was the captain we had a very very good a very good team so that you know helped me to become I think in some way I wouldn't say super popular with the county but let's say more popular than I would have otherwise been if I didn't have things like cricket or table tennis in my life. When it comes to university we all picked ours me and Hasib were the only two that went to Sussex. A lot of men went to uh, some strongly Asian <laughs> universities because a lot of our school was Asian. So Nottingham, Imperial, LSE, Manchester. Those, I think they were probably the majority. Was it a safe choice for you? Was it course-based? Was it a way to stay in your comfort zone or not? 100% not. Imperial was like different experience of school. Very overwhelming, you could say. So actually, I do you mean course-wise? Course-wise, but also people. Like, it's just a very different environment. So much bigger. Sure, there's plenty of Asians, but there's also <laughs> plenty of, like, other people as well. I actually did not know about Imperial when I was at school. I was applying for, you know, for a degree. I didn't know what I wanted to study. It was actually Vincent, who I believe might be working for MI5 right now. <laughs> Dizzy! Well, he's disappeared off the radar. Yeah, I'd last time I saw Vincent was about six years ago. Yeah, I've tried to tried to find him, but there's no, no do he's traces. A, do you reckon GCHQ? He did apply to MI5. And maybe. Yeah. He was actually one of the people. Great who, lad, Vincent, by the way. No, very nice guy. Like, yeah. We used to play badminton together. He was. Yeah, he was known as the he was known as the guy who was sick at badminton, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, very good at badminton. He was yeah, a great friend of mine, you know, like we were so close. Vincent was, so he applied for physics as a degree. Uh, as something to study at university and we also had great you know physics teachers at school as well like you know shout out to dr edmondson and uh, <laughs> mr hamid like you know they were very good teachers i could not speak to that i was one of only three people who did only for humanity <laughs> subjects <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no like huge credit to them right they sort of cultivated the passion in me for physics six um, classes or something like that physics <laughs> but yeah they made it fun and you know i yeah, because of them, because of Vincent, because I had no idea what I wanted to do, physics was the degree that I chose. You know, it kind of made sense at the time because it opened me up to, apparently it was like one of the 
degrees where if you study physics, you still have a lot of options open to you in terms of job prospects. I also considered not going to university, but for me at the time, the world was such a, a small place. It I was literally, all of us were like, it's university or nothing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's I did we not know what else to do. Yeah, yeah, so I ended up going to university. And yeah, like, you know, Imperial was, as somebody who is like quite introverted and quite shy as a mm. person, I still remember my first day at Imperial, I just felt like overwhelmed. I can still picture myself like lying on the bed that first evening. And I was like, wow, like, what is this? Because it was just so different to anything, you know, I was used to like suddenly you've gone from you know being in this very small institution of like a high school to this massive university in you know central sort of central London you could say where there's so many people Mm. was it a culture shock in some sense even though you said that Imperial was quite a mixed university you were going from a school which was 99% South Asian lads yeah to Imperial I don't know what the makeup was but was it still a culture shock in that sense yeah, for sure. I would say that, especially early on. A lot of my friends were brown. And <laughs> was that w- a conscious effort? <laughs> I think it was just To step like- out of your comfort zone, maybe? <laughs> well, I think it was just like a natural thing, right? Yeah. Like, because there were so many like anxieties around me at university, I was like, okay, like let me try and minimise those as much as I can because <laughs> there's so much going on here. So I naturally gravitated towards, you know, the brown people. Saying that, you know, I've got nothing against any other people. Like a lot of my university friends actually ended up being Asian, you know, Chinese, like, you know, from Hong Kong Mm -hmm. because of my passion for table tennis. But also had lots of other friends as well, you know, like white friends, black friends, you know. A lot of your man got their their horizons broadened (laughs) when they went to university, didn't they? Yeah, Mine were were already there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think I've always felt, like, comfortable around every type of person. That's never been an issue for me. But obviously, brown people, I've been slightly more comfortable around because of Mm. my experiences. You spoke about there about the difficulties that you experienced and the actual course you said was pretty bloody hard and you said at one point I wanted to quit at least once a month so who's the senior we meet here? Yeah so the senior you meet here is if we go back to Imperials so yeah I mean to be perfectly honest um, yeah the number of times I wanted to drop out like yeah it was at least once a month as, as you said I used to go home because I didn't live that far from home. So, you know, I'd go home, see my family. And uh, yeah, like a lot of times there'd actually be tears in my eyes. I'd actually say to them, you know, like I I genuinely, I genuinely want to drop out. Like I'm really struggling. Mm. What Uh, was it about the course that was so intense? Was it kind of just the difficulty level ramped up? Was it the volume of work? What was it specifically, do you think? I think, yeah, I think studying at Imperial, yeah, Imperial, like like I said, is one of the best universities in, in the world. Like its class is one of the best. It's a very difficult course, right? And then the fact that I was studying physics, which a lot of people regard as one of the hardest degrees out there, it was insane, insanely complicated, very, very challenging. So I think, you know, it's because of this that just just the workload, you know, it was very tough, very challenging. I was really struggling to keep up. And just all the other aspects to it as well, right? Like just being in this environment I'm not used to, it felt like a massive change from, you know, being in school. Did you find physics easier in school? Or did, like, did it oh, feel yeah. like a massive jump? Yeah, I mean, yeah. from GCSE yeah. to A-level was, I think, quite a big jump. But from A-level to university is a huge jump. I found the jump from GCSEs to A-level the hardest. Like, A-level really? to uni, for me, was a lot better because uni was like eight hours of contact time a week for me. Whereas I don't think it was probably for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very tough. I think I think there were a couple of things that kept me sane, at least in some mm. some respects. So 
One of those was table tennis. So in my first year, I actually didn't get into the team. <laughs> Second year, I just coincidentally, like it was very much a coincidence. I ended up going to their sort of AGM where they had a, a meeting, you know, at the end of the first year. And I somehow became secretary of the club for the next year, even though it wasn't really a part of it in the first year. That's a bit of a weird feeling. Yeah, I think there weren't really many people interested. They were taking what they could get. <laughs> yeah, so they kind of needed some help. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I ended up becoming really good friends with people on the team. And I still keep in touch with them. I was in Hong Kong recently catching up with old university friends. One of them actually became my housemate, one of my housemates uh, in my third year. And actually another player, I actually sat at his house in Hong Kong you know, oh, when, wow. I was, when I was there. So made a lot of good friends through table tennis. So it's table tennis and friends who have, you know, I think kept me partly sane during university. So, you know, table tennis friends, but also friends I made from my course. Like, you know, I made some great friends who actually helped me a lot to learn and to actually, I wouldn't say keep up because I was never able to keep up, but at least, you know, not do too badly at university. So yeah, a really good friend of mine called Imran, who kind of became a tutor. He was like one of my housemates in third year, in second year, sorry. He, yeah, kept me, you know, slightly, like sort of on the ball, you could say. You know, he'd always be there to help me when I did not understand something. Before we reflect, at a couple of points in your career, you were unemployed and applying for a lot of jobs. I've done it several times. I've been there, bro. It's pretty grim. What were your mental health state like here? Yeah, it definitely deteriorated a lot. So when I left Hubble, I was somebody who was, I think my LinkedIn tagline was an idiot learning new things that's in my notes <laughs> <laughs> and the reason i used that was not because i believed i was an idiot but i actually left hubble with a huge amount of confidence and that's you know again credit to the culture in the company so far in my life that's where i've had the highest level of confidence the highest level of self-confidence i genuinely believed i could go out there and build something truly awesome and I wanted to make sure, I wasn't cocky as a person, I still understood that there was a lot I had to learn and I was never the smartest person in the room, there's something you can learn from everyone, that's something I've always believed, but I wanted to make sure that I kept myself humble and that I always had some point of reference, something to sort of remind me, you could say, that I'm not, you know, a god, let's say. So yeah, I created that sort of tagline just as a reminder. But yeah, like as you were saying, you know, I was applying for jobs at one point because when I started the Ping Pong Society, initially I wasn't making any money from it. It was challenging as, as it always is. And so I thought, okay, you know, I need to get a job. And I genuinely believed it would be quite easy for me to get something, you know, based on my experiences and my credentials and stuff. But I was struggling, you know. Did that shock you? It did shock me a bit, but I also kind of understood it because I think one of the issues I had was when you're building your own company, you're working by yourself, right? The way I initially tackled this was that I wanted to spend the mornings working on the business and then the afternoons and evenings I'd go out and socialize because it's, it's very important to make sure, you know, you're surrounded by people. I think as a lot of people probably learned from covid um, it's something, you know, I learned well before, after Hubble, and I could see myself, you know, starting to change as a person and become a bit more anxious. And part of this was definitely due to the fact that I was more isolated. But the problem is that when you spend your mornings, you know, by yourself, 
it's very hard to then change the rhythm later mm. in the day and you know start to become social because you're suddenly in this sort of like work mode you could call it so that was a constant constant struggle and i think because of that i did struggle to sort of find a job because i kind of became like a person who was a bit more anxious than i normally would be so talking to people on for a job interview or something like that it became a little bit harder and i think that translated into my answers and then obviously the more interviews you give the more rejection you get the harder it becomes so i did actually research this uh, i was actually trying to build this sort of charity business during covid to help people who were unemployed to find a job and i did see these patterns in people's sort of job seeking behaviors where they would like go through this period where they would apply for a bunch of jobs and then they would go through this long pause because they need to deal with that rejection because mm. it's become overwhelming and then they would start again was this with men or women everyone yeah. everyone it's, uh, it seems to be a very common pattern amongst people looking for jobs you know? did you find anything specific with the men you know stereotypically sometimes people will say that men process emotions a bit more slowly than women so did the rejection maybe affect them more and it take them longer to build back up or were they able to push past it a bit more quickly what, what did you find out yeah i'm not too sure about that to be honest like i didn't speak to enough people to be able to sort of distinguish yeah, between I get yeah, yeah, like, yeah. the men and women but I, I spoke to enough people to see that overall pattern in mm. terms of you know how people would start and stop their search. Mm. It wouldn't be continuous. And for you, I've spoken about my own experience of unemployment three separate occasions, uh, quite a lot. Did you find it emasculating? Um, I wouldn't say so. I obviously did not enjoy that period <laughs> of time. But it was definitely, you know, like a big challenge for sure. It was a very sort of stressful period of my life I would say that it did knock my confidence mm. so suddenly you know I went from being this person who you know calls himself an idiot learning new things to to someone different like I actually changed my I didn't write this as a tagline but I I can't remember what it was now but I I think I sort of saw myself as I can't remember what it was but I, I essentially thought of myself as I had to basically rebuild myself, mm. right? I had to reshape myself. I had to change the sort of person that I thought I was. So, you know, when I lost that confidence, I was like, okay, I kind of need to regain that confidence. So I started calling myself, you know, like this sort of smart person. I said, you know, I'm one of the smartest people around. And I said that because I, I needed to hear that, right? You needed to give yourself the affirmation to start believing it almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, I just kind of like, so really quickly yourself switched. an idiot you needed to switch it up yeah, yeah very quickly yeah let's reflect now then mate so similar question as the first topic what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself i think yeah like i was saying earlier like it's definitely taught me that i'm capable of you know a lot more than i realize and i'm a lot more resilient than i believe as well i've also seen like you know when it comes to like running businesses there's like crazy mental health challenges you know within that process itself so there's been plenty of rejections like in all aspects of my life so every sort of rejection I think it's important to learn and I have made sure I've learned so I would say you know I'm much better at kind of dealing with things like that and I have become like much stronger mentally like I have my own sort of routines now as well you know so I think one thing I learned very 
quickly from building the ping pong society is that your happiness needs to come from multiple sources. So there's going to be plenty of times where you have, you know, a bad day in the office and you need to make sure that... You can switch off. Yeah, yeah, you can switch off. You have other things in your life to draw happiness from during that day. You know, otherwise you're going to have a crappy day. Your day's going to be rubbish, right? So you need to make sure there's there's different aspects of your life to draw that happiness from. Otherwise it ruins your, your mental health, right? So yeah, I made sure that that was definitely a thing for me. And as a final question... If you could go back and talk to the Sunil who was struggling with anxiety and shyness, the Sunil who was lurking in ICHS, or the Sunil who was just about to start magic with Varun, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think just just be braver, like just be more confident in yourself. You know, and there's something I even say to myself like now, like every day. I actually have like a morning routine now, which I never used to have. So quite an interesting one actually when i was in the u.s i i was just traveling on holiday just some random ideas came to mind i have two phones now so <laughs> i have my normal phone and i have just like another random spare phone lying around at home and what i do is i actually charge my normal phone i put my phone on the charger at the end of my bed so it's normally somewhere where i can't see then i'll start using the other phone and the reason i have the other phone is to tell the time but also if i need to set an alarm that's the other reason I'll use it as well. And if I want to do a bit of browsing before bed, you know, I might use it for that as well. But yeah, essentially, that's what I do. And I wake up in the morning, I don't look at my normal phone. So any messages and stuff, I won't see it initially. I'll wake up and I'll normally have uh, a cold shower, or at least I'll try to. Oh, Wim Hof. <laughs> yeah. My brother has a nice bath. Uh, Jesus. Which is, I'm pretty sure he did it today as well. It was very cold outside. So I need to find out how he got on with that. Wim Hof's taken over the bloody world. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll, I do have an ice bath sometimes as well. I'll also meditate as well for at least 15 minutes. And then, yeah, make myself breakfast. And I won't look at my phone until I've done all of that. And that's when I'll quickly look through my messages. I'll reply to whatever. And then I'll start working. And it's made such a big difference to my life. So anyone listening, I would definitely recommend that for sure. Our final topic of conversation, Sunil, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I think it's getting better. There's always ups and downs. Like COVID was definitely a tough time, as it was for most people. That definitely affected me. But yeah, like I was saying, I have these you know, routines in place that I would recommend to a lot of people because it really, really helps. You've spoken about the mental health conditions you have. So tell me now what age you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind. Yeah, anxiety, I think, was something I realised probably towards the end of probably sixth form, I'd say. So when I was like 17, 18, that's when I started becoming aware of, you know, my anxiety. And then I think the problem with anxiety, actually, is that because it's in your own head, I think generally as a person I am much more aware of my own state of mind than most people, I would say. At least that's something I've learned from speaking to other people. There was this one moment I had where I was actually just looking outside the window, like I was in my house, and it was quite sunny outside, and I still saw some, like, there was a bit of greenery. And all of a sudden, my state of mind just switched. Like, I just became much more relaxed. And it's when you have that sudden change that you you realise instantly, you know, like the state of mind you are in 
before. And I did not realize, you know, when I was in that anxious state of mind that I was anxious. It was only until I suddenly switched to a relaxed state of mind and I could see the sudden change that I realized that I was actually pretty anxious in that moment. And that that started to make me think, okay, maybe I don't understand myself as well as I thought I did. And I probably still don't, but I would say I'm much more conscious for sure. And can you remember the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment and a burden or a weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? I think, I don't think it felt like a big weight was being like released from my shoulders. I don't think I've ever had anything. Well, at least I haven't spoken about anything that is... That level um, of relief. There's a good good friend of mine called Vinny. Caught up with him yesterday, actually, but he's in Lisbon. We, we had a, a call. And I think he's the sort of person that... We are very similar as, as people, so we have been able in the past to have, you know, those sort of conversations, like when he was going through a tough time or if I go through anything, you know, we tend to sort of talk to each other. So I think it's very important to have at least like one person, you know, that you can confide in. And yeah, vent, I suppose, is the key word here. <laughs> I wonder why I said that word. <laughs> what things do you find in life, mate, that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a smell, a sensation. I think... Or have any at all. Yeah, no, I think for me, like, one thing I've I've seen is, like I was saying earlier, when I started working for myself there were lots of periods of times where I wouldn't be socializing very much. I think, you know, those sort of periods are definitely very triggering. So over the last couple of weeks, I have been pretty focused on table tennis and magic. I haven't done a lot of socializing. It was only yesterday where I think I went out to, went out for dinner for the, probably the first time in a while, actually, looking at my bank account. (laughs) And it was just just a nice moment, right? I think it's important to always do things where you can have conversations with people, you know, friends and and family. So those sort of periods, they trigger me very, very easily. So yeah, I always try to be conscious about that and, Mm. you know, sort of do things to socialize. You talked about positive tools and methods. So my next question is, what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a particular film or album, any piece of popular culture? Yeah, I mean, there is one book that comes to mind. I'm sure that there's more than one, but this is one I read a few years ago called Rest, which mm-hmm. is by, what's his name? Um, Su Yung Kim Pang, something wow, like Wow, well that. remembered that <laughs> for a Korean name. It's a very, yeah, it's a very good book, which is probably why I remember. I don't even know if that's completely correct, but <laughs> something like that. So he talks about, he was a professor at Cambridge University. I don't know if he still is, but he spoke about how rest is just as important as work. So he looks at rest and work as like a yin and yang. So when he talks about rest, he doesn't mean, he doesn't necessarily mean sleeping or, you know, watching TV. For him, rest can be, or what he calls restful activities, they can be activities that take your mind off of your job. So. They could be, you know, hikes, marathons, playing table tennis for me. 
things that switch off your conscious mind and get your subconscious mm. working. So rest almost like as a philosophical concept rather than a literal concept. Yeah, I'd yeah. say so. So he spoke a lot about how some very, very successful characters in the past, like he mentions Beethoven, if you look at their working pattern, these people, they weren't working like nine to five. The idea of nine to five has come about through um, what was popularized by Henry Ford. Um, and Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the idea is that you're working, so 9 to 5 is 8 hours, right? So you're working 8 hours a day, resting 8 hours, sleeping 8 hours. That's 24 hours in a day. So that, that's where it's come from. But there's no real science that backs up this way of working. So when he looked at these, you know, when he analyzed these characters, he saw that they were working 4 or 5 hours a day and the rest of their time they would spend doing, you know, these restful activities. So a lot of people these days, you know, they do marathons. If you look at... The entrepreneurs in, uh, in Silicon Valley, they're doing, you know, hikes up the, uh, the mountains and stuff. And it's, it's a great way of, I think it's a great way of working, you know. It's great for your mental health. I and mean, it's something that I have definitely tried very hard to do over the last few years. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? A mantra? Like a quote or a phrase or a saying? I mean, I did say earlier that sport is my drug. That's a good one. I, I would say that. I think that's something... I don't drink much alcohol, to be perfectly you honest. You never did, even even in our rebellious days. <laughs> yeah, never never really did. I can't remember the last time I had any alcohol. Uh, if I ever have, it's normally because other people have drank. Mm. Um, like rarely. a social occasion or a wedding or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like rarely do I drink because I want to drink. Yeah, I'm you know, getting that way, to be fair now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of like I've never done drugs I've never smoked, you know, I've never, like, I hardly drink. And I think a lot of people do it is one of the reasons... Socially. Yeah, socially. Mm. Well, a lot of people do it because it's a way of kind of escaping and de-stressing. Mm. But that's why I have sport, right? Sport is my way of kind of dealing with stresses and, you know, any mental health issues. And it is the longer I can stay active for, the better. I have been injured in the past and those periods of times haven't been so good. And, you know, I always try and look after my, my physical health. And I think in turn, if I look, look after my physical health, it will help look after my mental health. What do you love about yourself? What do I love about myself? I think um, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that question. <laughs> it always stumps a lot of people. <laughs> I think there's two things, actually, that I always I always say to people. These are things that I personally believe had made me what I believe to be a good entrepreneur, you know, mm-hmm. like other people might say otherwise, but I do think I am quite quite a good entrepreneur. I'd say one of the things is that I am quite in tune with my emotions. Mm-hmm. So I would say I'm emotionally intelligent as a person, quite empathetic. So this really helps you when it comes to building a business. If you can understand what your customers are thinking and feeling, it helps you to, to build, you know, to solve their problems better. And, and your staff. Yeah, and manage your team, you know, work with your team better. And, uh, you know, these are things that I have to do in my role. But the other side of it is my logical thinking. So from studying physics, as much as I struggled during my time at Imperial, I did develop a lot as a person. And my brain, like if you think of your brain as a muscle, it really, really developed. My way of thinking changed so much. You know, I sort of see it now when I talk to people, some of the solutions I have when it comes to solving problems or some of the way I look at problems has changed a lot right like Elon Musk talks about looking 
at problems from you know first principles and you know really trying to build from the ground up and I I do that a lot now when I you know compare myself to other people in the team or you know other people that I know who are trying to solve a problem I'm very good at looking at things from a different perspective and really processing things in a logical way so those two things combined I think make me this might not sound very humble but it I think it makes me a pretty awesome person brilliant mate love that and as a final question this is another broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all businesses all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it yes that's a good question i think like i think it's something that's very important to sort of start talking about from an early age so what one thing from my own experience is that i did see is that you'll talk to your parents as a kid when you're growing up right like your parents will always ask you how you're doing you'll have that conversation at least for me anyway but when you know, you start becoming a teenager, things start to change. And I think that sort of period of your life is very, very important, right, In your de- for your development. But at least for me, the conversation of how you're doing starts to slowly disappear as you become an adult. So I think that period of time is very important. The conversation has to continue. And it does start with family, right? It has to become part of the, it has to be ingrained in the culture in your family. You know, it has to be a thing. But also, like, not just family, obviously, you know, school has a big responsibility as well. At least in our days, like, I don't think it was something that was really spoken about, you know. There should definitely be, you know, something at school where people are talking about this and, you know, actively asking how you're doing. And the key is that you need to feel comfortable, right? So I think that's why I said family and and friends, they are the perfect people to talk to you about this because... They are the people you feel most comfortable around, or at least should feel most comfortable around. And on that note, Sunil Jindal, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to my old schoolmate Sunil for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I will put some links to where you can find out more about magic and the Ping Pong Society and follow Sunil on social media in the show notes. As always, I will sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard on this podcast, please do give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. Or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Just check in.